Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. As waves of COVID-19 and its variants ebb and flow, they're creating an unpredictable tug-of-war between restaurants and grocery retailers that one industry insider predicts will continue to complicate inventory management long after the current supply chain challenges subside. Arlen Wasserman, the founder of the food consultancy Changing Tastes, explains that this back and forth will hinge at first on consumers' comfort level and perception of safety, but also longer term on the impact of the quickly evolving economic landscape, a generational shift that sees millennials more in the driver's seat, and a social awakening about food's origins and the impact it has on the planet, all of which are being accelerated by the pandemic. As he explains in this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, each of these factors brings new challenges, like balancing inflation with consumers' ability to absorb higher costs, recruiting and maintaining top talent to keep businesses running and consumers flush with spending money, and creating menus and packaged goods that not only taste good, but also meet a rising demand for sustainability and historical and cultural awareness. But, as Wasserman adds, each of these challenges also brings opportunities that will pave the way for a brighter, even if still competitive, future for both food service and retail. So as the pandemic enters its third year of unprecedented and still unpredictable circumstances, Wasserman predicts competition across the food industry will heat up, creating a new set of challenges even as those that have defined the pandemic so far cool down. For example, he notes consumers are panicking less with each wave of COVID-19 and other coronavirus variants, which is reshaping their eating habits again so that they're more comfortable going to restaurants and eating down the stockpiles of the food that they've built up in their pantries over the last two years. Food industry and our suppliers, grocery retailers, manufacturers, restaurant hospitality companies, all are now entering our third year of unprecedented circumstances as the world decides how to respond to COVID and each variant that comes. So my expectations are that we are going to get better and better at managing what uh, we kind of call the uh, ping pong effect, which is people continue to eat, great. They continue to spend money on food, great. They even choose to spend more on food than they, or a meal than they used to because it's one of the luxuries we can safely enjoy compared to, say, going to hear a concert or a sporting event indoors or go to the movies. But what we see is the decision about where to eat, whether to go out or eat at home, is no longer a decision about, you know, do we want to go out with our family? Are we in a hurry? Are we meeting up with friends? But instead is the calculus about what's the current regulations, the transmission rate, Does the restaurant have staff to open? And is it warm enough to eat outside? 
And as you know, I know sitting in Philadelphia today, while our transmission rate is falling, so is the temperature, so I may choose to eat at home. And both grocery retailers and restaurants are now having to get used to waves of consumers picking one channel or the other and switching every day or week. So my expectation is for a lot of scrambling. So one of my expectations is that once this is done, we're going to be eating more of our meals in restaurants than ever before. Uh, the American consumer has shown an illogical, an unreasonable, irrational commitment to having other people cook their food for them. Even during the worst days of COVID before vaccination, about 15% of Americans would queue up to get fast food or a takeaway meal from a restaurant. Every time the transmission rates are down and the temperatures are up for eating outside, we flock to restaurants in record numbers. And this just shows where people want to eat some or more of their meals than ever before. So my, expectate, my hope is that COVID goes beyond us. The restaurant industry sees a little pickup in traffic as a result of all the sheltering, and we get back to a, a delicious world. I think the consumers um, are panicking a little less with each you know, wave. So when COVID arrived um, in the Western world, one of the things that we spotted early on, even in the first few weeks, was skyrocketing increases, hundreds and thousands of percentages, in the purchase of canned tuna, which is a product category that we'd watched decline in popularity and sales volumes in both grocery retail and food service for years. From a peak of over a decade ago, sales were down 40% before COVID. We were really wondering, you know, how much this hoarding behavior um, was turning into a change in how we eat, right? Because we know that can of tuna could be something that, you know, we hold on to for a while. It might make a great last meal, something we can pull out of the pantry if there's nothing else left in the supermarket, or when we had enough uh, energy to joke about COVID, you know, they were really good for throwing at zombies if they came at your house. So we did um, one of the first consumer surveys in the U.S. about purchasing behavior around canned tuna during COVID back in April of 2020. And so we asked the question, are consumers eating any of the canned tuna that they buy? We did the survey, and we found out that, of course, people had bought, in some instances, enormous quantities of canned tuna. You know, before COVID, it was unusual to have someone go in and buy, say, 60 cans of tuna at the grocery store on a shopping trip. But people were doing that until limits were put in place. And we found that the more tuna a household purchased, the less likely they were to eat any of it. So that showed up, you know, eight months later as COVID recedes, vaccines are present, things seem normal, except canned tuna sales are now below pre-COVID levels in the U.S. grocery retail space. Why? 
because when people finally did feel comfortable eating that can of tuna, they didn't go to the grocery store to buy it. They went into their basement or pantry to get that can instead. So we're eating our way through some of what we hoarded. Our houses are not infinitely large. We can't keep buying more every time there's a panic. And so the demand side is going to smooth out some. There's still a few things like toilet paper and bleach uh, and canned foods that do disappear whenever there seems to be you know, some uncertainty about whether we'll be allowed to go out or get into stores as often as we want uh, or whether it's safe to do so. But those things are smoothing out. Wasserman predicts that this in turn will help ease some pent-up pressure on the supply chain due to heightened demand. But, he argues, other contributing factors like labor challenges are less likely to subside as quickly. As such, he says inflation may also linger. And even when it drops, he doubts that the price increases that it drove up will fall back down to pre-pandemic levels. I do think the supply chain problems that we are seeing will get put behind us relatively soon. We've seen that these are being driven not by things that we can understand, you know, like a crop failure uh, or, a, you know, a, a labor action. They're driven by pent-up demand because we all sat at home and we have money to spend. And we work through the back orders. Things will get normal. If COVID is, you know, endemic, we may occasionally see something missing if a factory closes a little more frequently. But, um, you know, we're working through a one-time-only backlog of orders. So I do think supply chains are also going to smooth out sometime this year. I think that the inflation we're seeing now is not going to reverse into deflation. Prices have gone up. However, our move to more digital information, whether in the store or online, are allowing prices to be changed very quickly, which is great news for retailers and restaurants where consumer-facing companies trying to adapt to changing costs of goods. So we may see some prices come down a little bit as ways to say, sell things that aren't moving fast. But the biggest risk I do think is labor cost. And that's because, and this has really nothing to do with the food industry per se, we're seeing that a younger generation, Gen Zs and some millennials, simply are not motivated to go to work, let alone work in the food industry, which can be a demanding job whether you're cooking or stocking or packaging or checking people out or uh, overseeing manufacturing equipment or working on uh, production scale farms, more and more young people are choosing to simply not work. Um, and not the lack of participation is dr driving incredible wage inflation. So that's the one thing that I think is the real risk. A lot of that is, has been driven by government policy. Most Western countries gave some type of subsidy payment to everyone during COVID. And although we don't hear about it anymore here in the U.S., those payments are only now starting to slow down. 
And we're only now seeing people in their 20s say, I better go work more now because I have to pay my rent rather than I have to wait for my check. So we're going to have a year or two of those people choosing not to participate unless they're paid more than ever. And there's a knock-on effect that we see with older workers wondering why they're getting paid a wage so close to entry level. Employee, that entry-level employees are being hired at, and that will then trigger more wage inflation or more turnover. So this is the real problem area. And I think the only way that it's going to rectify is if the tone of elected officials makes it clear that it's time to get back to work, even though work may look a little different. You may be wearing a mask. You may be tested. You may need to be vaccinated. Um, but it's time to get back to work and not look for uh, help while you're not working instead. That's a pretty conservative economic point of view. It's not just about the food industry. But when we look at what powers grocery retail, food service, and food manufacturing, and food production, it's a job that largely has been about young people doing a lot of the work, and we need to get back to that to keep wages low low enough to prevent more inflation. Wasserman's idea of keeping wages low enough to prevent more inflation may be a bit divisive for some industry players, including those stocking shelves and delivering meals who increasingly are forming unions and taking to picket lines to command better labor conditions, including higher wages, better health benefits, and improved safety standards. The involvement of President Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders in two recent high-profile strikes at Kellogg's and Kroger, respectively, also signals that there's some political heavyweights and significant public opinion to back up those labor demands. And while wages and better benefits could go a long way to make the food industry more attractive for employees, Wasserman also notes that industry recruiters may have better luck attracting talent and loyal employees if they better highlight the long-term career paths and skills training than the industry historically has offered and been known for. food industry is an amazingly great one for creating jobs and careers, especially for people who may be at economic disadvantage, maybe new immigrants, or recent immigrants um, may be at uh, educational disadvantage uh, as they, you know, wrestle with either structural racism, economic disparity, learning a new language. Why? Because the food industry is one where you don't need a lot of formal education or training to enter it, and you learn most of what you need while you're working in the industry and can build a great career whether that's working your way up from a dishwasher to a restaurant manager or a chef or a district manager for a food service company or working your way up from the produce department to being a purchasing manager or deciding to take the food that you or maybe your parents or grandparents cook all the time and turn that into products or recipes or now you know, food education there are so many ways that people can overcome the lack of access to education or economic and opportunity and make their 
careers great ones in the food industry. I think if we tell that story, we'll get more people wanting to work again. Because people also love food, love hospitality. And um, if they realized how wonderful a multi-decade career you can have just by getting started and letting the industry carry you forward if you make the effort, you know, we'll solve a few problems there, including the labor problem we're all wrestling with. In addition to accelerating a labor rights movement in the food industry, the pandemic also is shining a light on cultural significance and the environmental impact of food, which Wasserman says is fueling dramatic shifts in how menus, CPG brands, and even individual ingredients are represented and selected. We do talk about menus getting woke in the year ahead. Prior to COVID, we had the Me Too movement in the restaurant industry coming clean on sexism in the kitchen and in the, in the dining room as well. And America has become woke to structural racism in our country. The food industry may get there soon. And again, I talk a lot about America. I know that the audience is maybe broader than that, although the United States is still the largest single country, uh, largest single uh, nation as, uh, as a buyer of food, so it matters. But um, America is a young country, and most of our food that we think of as American was really brought here by waves of immigration, including enslaved people who came here against their will. And I think this is a chance to recognize that our diversity has made our menus and our pantries and our supermarket shelves much more interesting. I'm going to give one specific example, and that is that, um, you know, one of the foods globally that's thought of as American is Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola, of course, had at its original recipe had coca leaves from South America, but no real mention or credit in telling the story of Coca-Cola also recognized that cola nuts were brought here by enslaved people because in Africa they had been used to purify or make palatable fetid water, which is what was available to drink on the ships and maybe when they got to the New World. So recognizing contributions, saying thank you to Africa for you know, the other half of Coca-Cola, or for things like chilies, hot peppers, or tilapia, both of which came from Africa as well and are now both American and global, um, is a way that the food industry can get woke to the true heritage of what we're eating or thinking of as American food or our food. It also can really change from a grim or confrontational to a much more positive way of talking, right? If we are willing to acknowledge the many peoples and generations and countries and ethnicities that make our food world as delicious as it is today and say thank you and show gratitude, that is also saying we value you, this is positive, and um, we appreciate getting to know more about each other. And food is one of the last safe places where we can explore other cultures. Um, and not be accused of asking the wrong question or the stupid question. 
So we have a great chance here not only to recognize where our foods really come from, but solve a lot of social problems in the food industry is uniquely positioned to do this compared to other industries or other sectors where if you start talking about race or origin, it becomes a fight rather than an opportunity to eat something new and delicious. The food industry also has a unique opportunity to change the narrative around its environmental impact, according to Wasserman, who says by carefully selecting ingredients and dishes that are not just sustainable, but also regenerative, restaurants can help create consumer demand that will change the products that brands bring to market and retailers stock. More consumers than ever are motivated to eat in ways that address climate change, protect ocean health, and it's also reflected in a new definition of wellness that includes not only the nutritional content of food, but what goes into our bodies or into the planet when we eat, from microplastics to pesticides and antibiotics or synthetic chemicals. The change that we're seeing in the U.S. is profound. And during COVID, we found that more and more consumers are eating for a mix of um, pleasure or great taste or adventure or trying something new or eating in order to reduce their impact on the planet, especially climate change. Back in uh, the mid-2000s, you know, I and a few other people realized that climate change not only was a critical issue, but that the food sector had a lot, had a large role to play. But the food sector on the production side is really just filling orders. And what we chose to eat or to offer to people to eat decided on what we grew. Were we going to cut down a rainforest? Were we going to overfish an ocean? Were we going to plant something that sequesters carbon? It all depends on what's on special at the grocery store or what we decide to add to the menu. So those choices mattered a lot. And it caused me to create the plant-forward culinary strategy for the restaurant food service industry and culinary professionals where we just shifted the role of conventional meat and plants a little bit. Meat on the menu just as often, but things like the blended burger might mean we eat just a slightly smaller amount of it, which also helps with food costs and nutritionals. The result of simply changing our recipes and menus and vaguely influencing how people eat, because the number of vegans and vegetarians really hasn't changed, but those simple menu changes have resulted in the U.S in a 15% reduction in our nation's carbon footprint since 2005 compared to the goals that President Biden just set for Glasgow. We're not building new power plants. We're not building a new fleet of cars. We're not renovating commercial buildings. We're changing recipes, serving delicious food, showing people new ways to cook, and doing more to address the climate problem than pretty much any other industry. We've just finished modeling what would happen if Americans now ate one more meal of food from the ocean or rivers or lake, could be shrimp, could be shellfish, could be thin fish, instead of uh, more beef, pork, or poultry. 
just one meal a week, that's another 5%. Now we're one-fifth of the way to our national climate change goals, which seem unachievable no matter how essential and critical they are. And we do it all without significant investment and just by playing with our food and doing good business. So the power of working in food, when you think about what we've already done, is extraordinary. And if there's anyone looking for a job in sustainability or making a better future, happening to be listening to this podcast, choose the food industry. As these trends emerge and merge in the coming years, and as food service rebuilds their competitive status, Wasserman predicts that the traditional path to market for CPG products and retail innovations also will evolve to more closely resemble restaurant offerings. For a long time in the consumer-facing segment, which is where I spend a lot of time, we've talked about kind of the convergence of grocery stores and restaurants. As grocery stores started to add more salad bars, hot bars, grab-and-go, you know, meals to take away and all sorts of stuff. And that convergence, you know, showed up as more Americans, especially young Americans, don't like to cook. They don't like to cook fish, but they also don't like to cook a lot of other stuff too. So culinary innovation is going to become more important to grocery retail than ever before. That's one thing we're seeing. Um, The other thing that we're seeing is that how we introduce products or new ways of eating has changed somewhat. There was a pretty tried and true formula. If you want to get consumers to like something new, started in independent or full-service dining, cascade it to more accessible price points, show more people how they can eat it at home, and then they go make it for themselves. We like to cook less than ever before. And it's also no longer true that we can safely watch that work through restaurants that are dealing with all sorts of problems over the next year or two. So what the other thing we're seeing is that if you're thinking about introducing food products, Two attributes matter a lot. One is you may have to show people how to eat it via social media, the 15 to 45-second video that shows how to prepare and then shows someone enjoying something. The visual appeal of food, simplicity of recipe matters a lot. And it also means your ingredients have to be much more closer to ready to plate and eat and require relatively few cooking steps, whether that's condiments like uh, chili crisp, which was the big condiment last year, or this year we're putting our, our bet, if we have to make a bet at the start of the year, on um, pinukurat, which is a Filipino hot sauce that's based in vinegar or coconut sap vinegar. You know, these things, you can use them on your food. You could also put them in a spoon and eat them. It might be a little spicy. Or you might not be out there buying you know, a salmon filet to grill at home, but you might instead be picking up a package of smoked salmon, which you can make look pretty on the plate, or you could just slice open and go out with a fork and use the fork only if you're polite or having to share it with others. So ease of of, um, the, the simplest path between I bought it and I'm eating it, it matters a lot now in product design as well. 
as consumers continue to raise the bar for food served both at restaurants and purchased at the store to serve at their home, Wasserman is optimistic in the industry's ability to innovate to not only meet these new standards, but to continue raising them in the years to come for the benefit of all. With that, we've come to the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope that you'll join me again next week for another installment. And to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe. Until then, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive, profitable, and safe week.